Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. At 7.30 this morning, KPFK received a call from a woman identifying herself as a member of the Weather Underground. Hello. I'm going to read a declaration of a state of war. This is the first communication from the Weatherman Underground. Kids know the lines are drawn. Revolution is touching all of our lives. Freaks are revolutionaries, and revolutionaries are freaks. If you want to find us, this is where we are. In every tribe, commune, dormitory, farmhouse, barracks, and townhouse, where kids are making love, smoking dope, and loading guns, fugitives from American justice are free to go. Within the next 14 days, we will attack a symbol or institution of American injustice. Instead, they saw protesters and police officers at work. Police detained a woman who charged through one of the police lines. Eventually, officers allowed all the counter protesters to rally next to Alamo Square. Some of them came with helmets and sticks. Others came here to peacefully demonstrate against hate. Um, we're here to fight against fascism, fight against the hate that's going on, and really to speak a message not only for ourselves but also for our children. Police officers fenced off the entire park. Aside from the officers on the ground, we saw a few people monitoring the protest from rooftops. Hi, I'm Elaine Brown, former chairman of the Black Panther Party. I say vote for Gail McLaughlin for California Lieutenant Governor. I know Gail well, and I know that she is one of the few office holders committed to the ideals put forth by the Black Panther Party as expressed in our 10-point platform and program. Hi, I'm Gail McLaughlin. I'm the former two-term mayor of Richmond, California, and a corporate-free candidate for lieutenant governor of California. With the primaries just around the corner, I want to talk with you about an issue that keeps me and so many Californians up at night, housing. There are a few things that matter more than having a roof over our heads. It's right up there with having enough food to eat and having safe water to drink. Yet in 21st century America, and especially in our great state of California, which is now the fifth largest economy in the world, housing is becoming a nightmare. California is losing our working families, our young people, our seniors, our artists. Every day, people are being priced out of our cities because they can't afford the skyrocketing rents. So today we have as our guest, Adriel Hampton, who lives in the Bay Area. He's a political activist, a journalist, and has run for office in District 10. Welcome, Adriel. Hi, 
Good to be here, Tina. Yeah, so I wanted to um, first talk with you about the California Progressive Alliance that you are working on with Gail McLaughlin. Uh, tell us a bit about this project, how you got together with Gail on this, and where you see this going in the future. Yeah, yeah, thanks um, for bringing that up. So that's, um, I was working with Gail McLaughlin's uh, Lieutenant Governor campaign for um, just over a year um, through here to the June 5th uh, primary in California. And um, the campaign uh, was not uh, nearly what we hoped it would be in terms of the, the final vote count. Uh, I know in the green room we were talking about uh, all of the voters who registered to vote for Bernie in the 2016 primary. Um, those voters just didn't come out uh, for our candidates this time around. When I say our candidates, I mean people endorsed by our revolution and various local mm -hmm. clubs and uh, BSA. Um, and what we really saw with Yale's campaign was, um, one, that you can't just transfer that momentum. If you're not doing year-round organizing, that builds large groups, you know, that, that follow a slate or yeah. follow, um, follow, you know, community recommendations and are, are, are actually actively organizing. Um, we're going to see the same kind of boom and bust cycle that we see with uh, whenever anyone comes up on the left, like the Dennis Kucinich presidency uh, run, you know, his presidential campaign, mm -hmm. um, Howard Dean, when, when people thought that Howard was a progressive. Um, mm -hmm. and, yeah, right. Yeah, I know so bad. And then uh, Bernie, <laughs> Bernie Sanders, um, you know, and, and you know, I, I know a lot of us hope that Bernie Sanders can keep up his momentum going into 2020. Um, but the, the truth on the ground in California is that there was no momentum for progressives related to the kind of surge we saw in 2016. Like that wave mm -hmm. didn't hit. And that's, that's obviously extremely disappointing. On the other hand, what we did with Gail's campaign is um, because Gail just has this gentle spirit, but very radical yeah. on the issues, um, she, she has a, a way of bringing people together that few politicians uh, and even activists do. Um, and she's got a lot of admirers, and she also has the real history of, of having um, served for like 12 and a half years in Richmond, you know, two terms as yeah. mayor. Um, and so she kind of, you know, kind of, um, um, you know, punch at the level of, 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 of more serious uh, politicians. And um, a lot of our politicians here in California, you know, especially now that it's uh, so majority democratic and so corporate controlled, corporate uh, funded, uh, you see these politicians, um, you know, it's almost like a club that everyone's in. Mm -hmm. It's not really like uh, representation. It's not really like right. neighborhood organizing. It's like it's a club. You know, they have conventions. They're a lot of fun. So coming out of Yale's campaign, so we got like 4% of the vote. If you think about how big California is, that's 40, 40 million people in California, 4% of the vote. It's not, it's only uh, like 200 and, um, maybe 250,000 voters um, because people don't vote, unfortunately. Yeah. But if you think that yeah. there's probably 1.6 million people in California who are in this kind of um, progressive left, 4% uh, of the population isn't huge, but I think we have a lot more activists because to be in that, like, mm -hmm. you have to be politically engaged. And then, you know, we have a really big problem in our country uh, and, and in our state um, that there are, uh, there is a minority that is um, overrepresented um, in, mm -hmm. uh, in our elections and, uh, and also not represented at all. So you basically don't have conservatives represented. You don't have the left represented. You just have this kind of big corporate 
amalgam of, uh, of you know, like marketing to get people to react to these politicians and get them in. And we spend massive amounts right. of money, like giant marketing campaigns. So with Gail's campaign, we actually put together quite a large list of progressives who supported Gail, and she got all mm-hmm. these amazing endorsements, like the you know Movement for People's Party was an early endorser, the uh, Green Party of California endorsed, as did uh, many of its chapters, uh, Democratic Socialists right. uh, nationally endorsed in many of their, their chapters, uh, the DSA East Bay and DSA um, LA were especially helpful in organizing some, some big events, one of them with... Um, with Nina Turner and Jimmy Dore. Um, right, right. So coming out of the campaign, you know, this, this thinking about this 4% and what that represents, it's very similar to what happened with like uh, um, Upton Sinclair and Eugene Debs mm-hmm. in California. In June of 1918, with American troops now fighting in Europe, Debs spoke to a socialist gathering in Canton, Ohio. In this, his most famous speech, he outlined the socialist opposition to the war and gave his unqualified support to the Russian Revolution, which had just taken place under the leadership of Lenin and Trotsky. This was also the speech for which he was sentenced to jail. In the Middle Ages, the feudal lords and barons, the economic predecessors of the capitalists of our day, declared all wars, and their miserable serfs fought all the battles. The poor, ignorant serfs had been taught to revere their masters, to believe that when their masters declared war upon one another, it was their patriotic duty to fall upon each other and to cut one another's throats for the profit and glory of the lords and barons who held them in contempt. And that is war in a nutshell. It hasn't changed. The master class has always declared the wars. The subject class has always fought the battles. The master class has had all to gain and nothing to lose, while the subject class has had nothing to gain and all to lose, especially their lives. The ruling class has always taught and trained you to believe it to be your patriotic duty to go to war and to have yourself slaughtered at their command. But in all the history of the world, you, the people, have never had a voice in declaring war. And strange as it certainly appears, no war by any nation in any age has ever been declared by the people. And here, let me emphasize the fact and it cannot be repeated too often, that the working class who fight all the battles, the working class who make the supreme sacrifices, the working class who freely shed their blood and furnish the corpses, have never yet had a voice in either declaring war or making peace. It is the ruling class that invariably does both. They alone declare war, and they alone make peace. Yours not to reason why, Yours but to do or die. This is their model, and we object on the part of the awakening workers of this nation. Two weeks after he gave his Canton, Ohio speech, Gene Debs was arrested and charged with violating the Espionage Act. Two months later, he was tried, found guilty of the charges, and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Mm. Uh, historically, and we're talking about like 100 years ago. But you, um, you say, what do we do with that? Where do we want to be in two years? Where do we want to be in four years? And to do that, you have right. to build infrastructure. So what I'm working with right. Gail on is just to provide infrastructure for progressive organizing. We're not sure what that's mm-hmm. going to end up. I think we need to do events. But if, like, mm-hmm. if there's an R-Revolution California that forms 
and they want to, you know, hold a big event, like, um, you know, I don't know how that would relate to the California Progressive Alliance, but it's like, then you don't need to do it. But there are things that are not happening right. in the progressive movement right. that are needed to happen. Like, imagine you're down in Southern California, I'm up in Northern California. The way the Democratic Party works, they're having a big, it's called the e-board, but it's open to anyone. Right. And I've always That's gone, right. um, I've always gone as a, as a, um, uh, as a speaker, usually, for the Computer and Internet Caucus. And um, they rotate that. So they have two meetings, at least. Maybe I'm not an insider enough to know. Maybe they have three. Um, they have one or two of these e-boards, and they have a big convention. And they rotate them north-south. So it's like Sacramento and then right. San Jose. and uh, San Jose and Sacramento up here. Uh, and then down in the L.A. area, it might be, you might do San Diego or Anaheim or Los Angeles. Right, right. Um, but, but the activists, um, from the Democratic Party get to mingle and see each other and they have committees and they, they do resolutions and they do work, right, to say this is how we want our party to be. The problem is is that it's a rotten party because of the corporate funding and the corporate domination. So the one thing that Gail and I, uh, basically the one guiding principle of this organization that we're trying to build is no corporate influence. Like corporations can't donate to it. Um, and we won't endorse corporate candidates. We won't even even consider them because there is nothing right now in terms of infrastructure that draws that line. You know, there are many, right. many citizens groups uh, and many, many activists throughout this, the country who are against money in politics, but there's no one uh, voluntarily ending it. Um, and so that's what you have to do. You have to, like, try to build something new um, even while other people work on what remains of the Democratic Party. You know, if they can reform it, that's great. I would love to, you know, to, to participate in a healthy Democratic Party. Um, I don't yeah. want to participate in, 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 in a, you know, in animating a corpse. And, uh, and yet, <laughs> my people don't have a, um, uh, the infrastructure they need. So um, that's no, all. No. So technical infrastructure, um, you know, Gail doing ed- education about um, how to build progressive alliances and, you know, evangelizing the mm-hmm. corporate free message. Um, and I'm excited mm-hmm. about it. I think, you know, it's unfortunate that Gail didn't become lieutenant governor, but she she's just going to do the same thing she would have. She just doesn't have, you know, she just needs more volunteer help because we didn't get, uh, you know, right, get, a, right. get a seat at the table in Sacramento yet. Um, right. I'm a well. I'm a big fan of Gail. So, and I absolutely voted She's for awesome. her. I had her on so the podcast. Awesome. Yeah, I had her on the podcast a couple months back. She's a great interview. I too, listened so. to the interview. I'm, yeah, I really liked I did, it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, she's great. Very knowledgeable. And so that's awesome. And I want to add to that this idea of having an alliance. I think is really important because on the left we are a little bit shattered. We're not always so good at allyship, meaning that we sort of. I think too many on the left are siloing into the Dem Enter group, the Dem Exit group, the Green Party group. You know, and, and instead of fighting each other in these different capacities, we should we would be much more effective together if we, you know, were allied. Well, I think so I, I think, think every, the interesting thing you know, is if we were allied, the Democrats would have to seek our approval. But because we're right. not allied, they don't, and then they yes, just do whatever they advantage. want. So, and, and I exactly. know that people say, like, you don't, you know, there are plenty of people who say, I, we don't want to be appeased, you know, appease, appeasers, we don't want the Democrats to do whatever they want. But the truth is, you have to have enough power to influence them. And if you splinter yeah. off, splinter off, splinter off, you have no power. And then, you know, if right. you have, if you have 4% of, of the voting power and the organizing power, I think it's a much, much bigger in terms of organizing power. And if you look at, mm-hmm. like, um, you know, the, the um, woman, uh, Natalie, uh, 
Rizzi, I think it, it, it is, uh, who ran with Peace and Freedom um, for Secretary oh, right, of Education yeah. or, or for Education, I, <laughs> Superintendent of Public Instruction, whatever yeah, yeah. it is. Um, she got like 5% of the vote, which is big, right? That's big, like for a Green Party or Peace yeah. and Freedom. Or an the most interesting thing I saw with Gail, I think is really hopeful sign for the future of the progressive left in um, California is simply that um, people told Gail, you know, you, you, you made a big mistake by not running as a Democrat. And Delaney mm. Easton ran as a Democrat, and Gail did better, even though she was down ballot. Um, and, yeah. and that's a validation <laughs> of, a, of a Big Ten strategy to say, no, you know, I welcome votes and endorsements from Democrats and also from Greens. And, you know, and she ran as an open socialist, uh, independent, yeah. um, and, uh, and got more votes than a Bernie-crat Democrat. Um, who spent yeah. more money, you know, a lot, I think considerably right. more money. Um, mm -hmm. So, and we did get the OR endorsement and that was, uh, you know, OR is helpful because it tells Bernie Kratz where to go. I think the other challenge is we have so many candidates, like if alliances among progressives can kind of winnow out candidates, and I don't mean mm -hmm. in a DCCC backroom kind of way. What I right. mean is have them do, you know, have a day-long candidate forum where people speak and debate, and then, you know, the participants uh, who are either representatives of their groups or delegates to, to some kind of alliance, uh, uh, you right, know, right. vote to endorse them or not. And those candidates could still yeah. run, but you've got to have, like, the more democratic we can be, the better, because right now none of our groups are that democratic, uh, you know, it, the, the right. national groups. The, there's a lot of top-down um, control from different nonprofit organizations yeah. and political organizations and political parties. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, we, we could work on becoming more democratic. So you also um, started a new network called the Really Online Lefty League, which I completely love this name. <laughs> it's great. Um, so tell us a bit about this network. Yeah, it is, it is, it is not as wholesome as you make it sound uh, there. Um, <laughs> it is, it is, uh, it is, and you're the first, you're the first to ask me about it. On me? What's that? <laughs> I said, are you going all Bernadine Dorn on us? I, I don't know <laughs> her story, so I hope not. <laughs> oh, Bernadine bad. Dorn. Um, she was part of the Weather Underground in the 60s. Oh, no, 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 no. This is very tame compared to that. <laughs> uh, it's right in the middle of those two things. It's, it's okay. not as wholesome as you made it sound, and it's definitely not, not Weatherman stuff. Um, all it is is um, – so – I've worked in, uh, in digital, uh, politics and digital marketing and digital and, and, uh, and organizing technology for a long time. Uh, when I mm -hmm. ran for Congress nine years ago, I was, uh, at, also a podcaster. I'd been on Twitter for a year. Um, yeah, I had multiple Twitter accounts for different purposes and, you know, for different right. organize, organizations and, you know, had, that was back when there were so many Twitter apps. Uh, and so I had mm -hmm. like eight apps hooked up, you know, to do different, automations and things, you know, things that like Hootsuite does now, right? And people get like Sally right. Albright get in trouble for doing. Um, <laughs> and I never did any of this for, uh, for evil or for people I didn't believe in or causes I didn't believe in, but I'm edgy. I've always been edgy. And that's why I like like uh, Institute for Progressive Memetics, right? It's all really edgy mm -hmm. shit. And the thing is, is yeah. that ed edgy shit is what it takes to get noticed in a world where we can mm -hmm. be um, you know, bombing a dozen countries around the world routinely yeah. um, with predator drones, and no one is even giving a blink about it. And right. um, so that kind of so that's always been kind of part of my personality and part of my style. Although um, I, there's much longer stories I could could, could go into um, about you know how I, how 
I developed that. But the really online lefty league is just um, it is just a um, a legal vehicle to do a pack work. Um, so it's we're setting okay. up a pack. Yeah, and what it will do, it, this is interesting. It's just not entirely wholesome. Um, we will just raise money for specific projects. We'll say, like, mm -hmm. okay, this Democrat is running against this Republican or this Democrat is running against this right-wing Democrat or corporate Democrat, or uh, we might say um, this uh, Green is running against a Democrat um, or this Bernie-crat uh, registered with the Democratic right. Party is running against a corrupt Democrat. Um, there's several races that I've identified in California, federal races, and so we're just setting up a pack so we can raise money and do damage in those races as independent expenditures, most likely. I don't think okay. we donate to the campaigns. We'll basically, but we'll be doing online work, um, basically amplification work. Like, for example, what if you had a pack that could, you know, take the best meme from a dank meme stash on Facebook and mm -hmm. spend, you know, a thousand bucks bombarding the district with that? And this is the weird thing, you know, about the Democrats' excuse for why they lost the 2016 election. They say, oh, it was, it was the Russians. And the only documented case was that uh, it was an Internet something. So it was that small company with like 15 guys. Right, right. The work they did was infinitesimal compared to what the Trump campaign itself did. They spent like they mm -hmm. were one of the, the great leaders in spending on Facebook and on running massive amounts of variables, a lot of it to suppress the vote from what I've read, and yeah. which is very disturbing. It's like really ugly campaigning. But the Democrats, like all of yeah. this is public awareness, public knowledge. You know, it's like these companies exist, these kinds of political right. entities exist, these international, um, you know, uh, it's like, it's like, it is like Cold War stuff. It's like, we're going to fuck with you online. And the U.S. Yeah. is doing it to <laughs> them all the time. We used to drop leaflets, oh, absolutely. you know, and yeah. everyone drops, like you, they're probably dropping leaflets over in Venezuela right now. Um, right, right. And, um, you know, I think the thing is, so, so all, all the, the really online lefty league is, is, a, is a, a legal vehicle to do a certain kind of electoral work and um, also to operate out of cycle. So instead of having to have a campaign to work for, I can fundraise to do campaign work um, that okay. will be, be effective. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Okay. So that sounds interesting. Um, have you been following the uh, San Francisco mayor's race? <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> so what, are, what are your thoughts on that? My thoughts on it. Um, well, it's, um, it's really uh, difficult because the um, uh, progressives in, uh, have an uh, African-American problem. And that's, that was true with the Bernie campaign, and he did a lot to work on that as it progressed, and I think he's continued to sense, and I think he's very mindful of it going into a future campaign. San Francisco mm -hmm. progressives also have an African-American problem, um, mm -hmm. and that is that um, there was a, a charismatic, powerful corporate attorney politician named Willie Brown who became the mayor of San yeah. Francisco, and then used a lot of um, patronage to, um, to, to build a really loyal cadre of folks, of uh, multi-ethnic cadre. Um, and um, the thing is, is like when you run a city, like you get to like hire the people and you get to, you know, kind of say whose roads get fixed fastest. Like there's, it's a lot of power. And yeah, Willie Brown like, used that power like really effectively and um, really built an empire. And they're actually calling um, this mayorship Willie Brown 4.0, um, 
because mm. he has had his stamp. I mean, he's still around. He's still involved in politics. He has a weekly column in the San Francisco Chronicle, the largest paper, like the moderate conservative paper that goes out to the suburbs. And, right. um, and so, uh, so what happened, what was really crazy about this mayor's race, right, is that we have ranked choice voting. So you get to vote for up to three people. And uh, there were three strong candidates running. Um, one was London Breed, uh, who, is the, who, who won the race narrowly. Um, she had been mm-hmm. the president of the Board of Supervisors. She was briefly mayor when the mayor died. I mean, it was all weird because this was a right. snap election because the mayor dropped mm-hmm. dead. And it was actually at my local Safeway, like just uh, you know, yeah. half a mile from my house. And, um, he, uh, and he was not, you know, not old. He was like, like uh, late 60s, no. but, you know, yeah. So, um, or early 60s, maybe. So London yeah. Reed, and then there's Mark Leno, who had been running for some time, and uh, he was a, a Board of Supervisors guy. He was in the Assembly. He was in the Senate, State Senate. Um, very effective progressive legislator, um, but with a lot of business ties. And he was appointed by Willie Brown originally um, to his seat as a supervisor. And so um, there's a, some tension about from progressives, like, is he the right guy? He's also would have been um, the first openly gay mayor of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And he had started running sometime before, but for the 2019 race. So he was the only one who was in the race when the mayor died. Um, then, uh, there's uh, Jane Kim, who represents the South of Market District in uh, San mm-hmm. Francisco, which has the richest and poorest residents, um, people in like $15 million condos, like, uh, you know, up 30 stories above the right, bay, right. and uh, yeah. a lot of homeless people, uh, some really awful conditions. Um, so she yeah. um, ran, and she ran, uh, she's a progressive. Um, the problem is, is that uh, a lot of hardcore, when I talk like the 4%, who are the hardcore really think about politics a lot. They're not, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they, they make decisions independently. She has a, a troubled, not a troubled, uh, she has a, a, um, a, uh, an up and down record of, on, on yeah. the issues. She was part of a, a gentrification project in the South of Market that kind of looked good at first uh, and has turned out to be really awful where it ended up just with a lot of right. rich techies working alongside homeless people. You know, like literally yeah. that's, you can watch it. Literally, it's really yeah. Weird. Yeah, yeah. Like walk, you know, when they're walking by at the at rush hour, yeah. like 6 o'clock or 9, yeah, no, 9 a.m. I've seen that. Yeah. And so, uh, so that was, that's part of her legacy. And then also she ran a campaign that had a lot of corporate money in it. However, a lot of progressives really got behind her, including the, one of the groups that I'm really active with, the San Francisco Bernie Press. And, um, and, but it became apparent that Breed had way more money because a lot of tech people are giving her money. I got a mailer from Ev Williams. Uh, I was funded by him, mm-hmm. and it was an attack on Mark mm-hmm. Leno. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. so just massive independent expenditures, like just unlimited amounts of money flowing for Breed because she represents this ongoing um, – when I said that, that Willie kind of built a patronage machine and also sewed up the uh, African-American community, um, he also just uh, was very, very good for corporations, very, very good for developers in particular. So development right. is the thing that makes so much money in San Francisco, but also like paving contracts, um, you know, road repair contracts, uh, any kind mm-hmm. of um, these. These are all multi-million dollar or sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars in, in contracting dollars yeah. in the city. And they've controlled it through through Willie Brown, then to uh, Gavin Newsom, then to Ed Lee, and now they've got uh, another mayor in that vein who kind of keep that, keep the same alliances in place. 
and uh, not right. good for for progressives at least. Um, no, so, it's not. Uh, so in the end, the uh, Mark Leno and Jane Kim campaigns came together and they said, um, "We're going to co-endorse each other. If you vote for one of us, vote for the other one second, um, so that mm. we can, you know, try to overcome this use ranked choice voting to overcome this machine." And right. uh, they almost did it, um, and it was really awful because for a few days Mark Leno was was the winner, um, but as they continued to count ballots, there were a lot of uh, last-minute ballots, and it, it just bugs the hell out of me. These these races being decided, you know, it takes weeks to count. We need. The, right. I want more transparency. We were talking about that. I think before we we yeah. we, we got out of the green room about uh, some of the problems in LA with people not being on the rolls, and when you cast provisional ballots, right. a lot of them get thrown out. Um, there's some serious problems, but yeah, Leonard Breed won, and I'm like looking to get out of the city because I was just hanging on, trying to hang on for the progressive movement here. But I, I don't yeah. know if this is the place in our. It's also insanely expensive to live here. It's just sickening, and that's yeah. going to just get worse under the new administration. Yeah, two two things here I think are really unfortunate. Um, most people perceive San Francisco as being a very very left environment. So that's the perception that people not only have in the state of California, but also have in the rest of the country. So yeah. there's that. And then the second problem is, is we have, we have this uh, disease, for lack of a better word, within our ranks where these real estate developers, et cetera, they have done a lot of damage in the state, um, not just San Francisco area, but yes, very much so. I know we were talking about where that area is south of market. It's, it's, if you walk around in that area, it's just the most depressing thing you'll ever see. Because yeah. you see, so you see so clearly the income inequality in the state, and I, um, you know, I'd mentioned in the green room <laughs> that we, you know, Wendy Carrillo, who is our our representative down here, I went to our last town hall and she was very displeased to hear that she does not support overturning Costa Hawkins, which I yeah. believe is at the root of so much of this because these developers know that if they buy the, these, these old buildings, tear them down and rebuild them, they no longer have to abide by any rent control laws at all. So uh, that is one of the uh, the issues with Gail's campaign and with the California Progressive Alliance is just in, in the organizing and messaging work we did, we learned what really resonated with people. And uh, I, yeah. my take on the uh, Costa Hawkins is simply that uh, it's like, it's like the new Medicare for all. It's, overwhelmingly yeah. supported by Californians, uh, just like almost unanimously supported by Democrats, especially urban Democrats, you know, who actually have to deal mm -hmm. with issues of filing rents and having every time you move, you know, the, the rent pops up or getting evicted yeah. because uh, they want to reno your building. Um, there's so many obscene <laughs> tactics that make people's lives hell. And uh, that's really disappointing to hear that Wendy Carrillo is not supporting uh, the cost of it's I think that it's just going to be the litmus test for Democrats for the next, uh, you know, next generation of Democrats in California. Exactly. We can make that. That's the kind of thing that Cholpac will, will make very clear. Which I love. We need to make that clear because here's the perception is here, here you have these left-wing cities that are supposed to um, be about egalitarianism and you know, all the things that we ideally, ideologically want. And then the perception is, well, what's going on there? Look at the rates of homelessness. Look at the ten cities. Clearly, the and you'll see the right wing say this. Clearly, the Democrats can't be trusted. Look and the problem is, people. is that they're fucking you know right wingers here. Like we're our yeah. city of San Francisco is run by right wingers. Uh, you know, she know, London Breed appealed to the Republican Party. She had right. uh, Charlotte Maynard Schultz and George Schultz campaigning for her. 
literally the you know the Bush uh, uh, defense yeah, secretary. Bush is that, that? Yeah. 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 It's obscene. It is literally. I mean, it, it is, is really bad. There's one reason I'm supporting Kevin DeLeon for Senate is just because he, um, if he can knock out Feinstein, it's like just night and day. She she's part go. of the same yeah, political machine. She's part machine. of the problem. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a political machine. It's it's you know it's it's Nancy Pelosi, Gavin Newsom, Dan Feinstein. Yep. Uh, it was the Burtons, but they finally aged out of it, and the 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 next generation lost a race early enough that she's, she's kind of stayed out of yeah. this stuff. Let's talk about Gavin Newsom for a second. Uh, you know, you you have experience with him directly living in the Bay Area. He was um, he ran for mayor, and I believe you didn't you get a reward from the San Francisco Sentinel for your coverage of the mayor's race in 2003 with Gavin <laughs> Newsom and uh, Matt Gonzalez? Yeah. Am I wrong? That was such a, I did. So, that was a funny, um, uh, yeah, it's so funny, all these awards. And, you know, it's like, uh, I, you know, I've been on like nine YouTube shows, you know, <laughs> I'm like famous. Yeah. Um, but it, the Sentinel is kind of, kind of, but Sentinel is great. And I wish the guy who ran it was still around. He, he died yeah. uh, way, way too young. Um the I'd say it's ridiculous. I've been I've like outlived some of the other reporters in San Francisco already. But I started very young. Um, I was a reporter yeah. here when I was like 22. I was like an editor at the Examiner, and I got to mm. do a lot of really fun stuff, including cover the mayor's race and uh, in 2003. And when I was a um, really just starting out as a reporter, because I had been a, a copy editor while I was going to college. I was a copy editor right. from like three to 12. Um, you know, because it's like the midnight shift to after the reporters turn right. their stories, you're like mocking it up and writing the headline and, and making sure the spelling's correct. Um, yeah. Back when you had to know how to spell. And um, yes. <laughs> so I can't spell anymore with spell check because then you just have the, the few check. words that you never, you know, it always catches the few words that you really don't know how to spell. Um, yeah, totally. So, so I met uh, Gavin Newsom like um, after he was appointed by Willie Brown to the Board of Supervisors. I met Gavin Newsom uh, in his run for supervisor because he had to run for re-election. And uh, on one instance, I stood outside of the Marina Safeway with him for like a couple of hours while he handed flyers to people coming out of Safeway and just kind of observed and talked to him. Um, so I wrote stories about, about that. And then I covered the mayor's race um, there were several candidates, but then uh, Matt Gonzalez, who was a very popular leftist supervisor, um, yeah. got, uh, and he was like a Green Party maven. He was just like, you know, the Green Party, he was like the biggest star they ever had. And um, he uh, he jumped in like right at the filing deadline. And I broke the mm. story and then covered it. Um, but it uh, it's, it's the hard thing, you know, I, not until I ran for office myself that really how little I really knew. And a lot of it is about money. I know that as a marketer. You know, if you have 10 times as much money to spend on advertising as I do, you're going to get 10 times the results, you know, and that's mm -hmm. it's just the truth. It's like, why would it work differently in politics than it works for selling Coke versus Pepsi? Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, I, I want our politics to be better than that. But at the end of the day, you have right. to have an organization that can reach people like that. And you know, if you don't have the $4 million to spend, you need like 400 full-time volunteers, you know. Um, there's like, you can do the math on it. Like how volunteers are worth a lot, but you need a hell of a lot of them to match. In the lieutenant governor's race, we had more than $10 million spent against us, you know, or spent for one candidate, not against us. That would have been, you know, then we might yeah. have only got 2%. Uh, who knows? Right. You know, actually, the four probably would have held. The four probably would have loved it. 
Um, so, yeah, Gavin Newsom, what else do you want to know about Gavin Newsom? Well, I feel like Gavin is um, – I'm very disappointed with him as of late. I feel like he was a much better progressive many years ago. And now I'm uh, – you know, he used this tactic in the uh, – in the, in the June 5th primary, which really I found disturbing. Oh, I got a text to get the sheepdog Cox, right? Yeah, you know, I, I so here, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a registered Republican. If I'm getting right. a text message that I read, and I think to myself, if I was a, a Trump supporter, I am all fired up and I'm going to go out and vote. Does he not give a rat's ass about what that does to everybody down ballot? I, I don't understand. It, it, like and not only, kind of not only did it hurt yeah, not only did it hurt us in June, it will hurt us in November because having I Fox agree. on the ballot is going to bring – so we here's the scary thing, Democrats. right? We could have had two Democrats. We could have had two Democrats. Adrian, we could have this, this yeah. whole argument about being at a jungle primary, this, that, or the other, and trying to drum up fear. But the reality is in our open primary system, it's more likely that you're going to end up with two Democrats on the ballot. And if you are so self-absorbed, as a candidate, that you would rather face the Republican in the fall because you know you're more likely to win, I'm done with you. I'm very angry about that. Yeah, it's disgusting. It's actually interesting is uh, I, I think I, I tweeted on election night and it got picked up by the local news channel, something like Gavin Newsom yeah. so smarmy he just might lose. When he pulled this stunt with Cox, Willie Brown in his San Francisco Chronicle column uh, defended him and said he's just doing what he needs to do right. to win. And um, absolutely disgusting. And it shows that, you know, like Gavin Newsom was Willie Brown 2.0. And, uh, and now he's going to be the governor. And, then, and it's all just fucking dominoes because uh, yeah. with him as governor, Dianne Feinstein, should she be reelected, will then be free to resign. And Newsom will be free to appoint someone to kind of carry on their machine legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I don't know. I know there's yeah. a lot of people angling for that already. It's, politics is just it's really disgusting. And the only reason I stay involved is it actually really affects our lives. We think about other people and the fact that like, okay, if I, um, if they, if they cut welfare dramatically or cut health insurance dramatically or cut senior housing dramatically, that's not going to affect me personally, but I know what Mm -hmm. it's like to be poor and I know what it's like to feel poor. And I want to teach people what, you know, the empathy that uh, you learn from having experienced that. And and it seems like there, you know, there are other folks who are just fine getting along as lobbyists, you know, working in public affairs right. for ridiculously evil companies. And I just, you know, made a decision that I can't do that. And it's hard, but it's hard, you know, it's hard to make a living in the California economy making moral choices about the kind of work you'll do. Yeah. Um, but, but, and that's why we need government. We need government to say that there's a yeah. floor on your income, um, that there are rights in the workplace. Um, you know, we're, we're in a really scary time because of Trump, uh, and I think also it's just a slide um, into fascism because not enough people care, not enough people are engaged. Right. Um, those of us, and, and you pointed out a flaw in the left, is that there's a lot of, uh, there's, there is division. The Republicans and conservatives think that they have division too, um, but they also have a lot of corporate money feeding into, like, outrage, like it's an outrage machine. And then you have a big squishy yeah. middle that is, they're like, as long as we're, you know, as long as I got a house, you know, that's what they started saying on Fox News. I was reading today that they're saying, oh, those aren't our children. And that's like, you know, that's Nazism. And it's right in our, right in our living room. Um, and, you yeah. know, it's, it's the, the othering. Um, and it, and it is directed right. at weaker people. It's not directed just because of their color. It's like they're weak. Um, they think that, that uh, yeah. these are, like, there's got to be a huge motivation around this that's fear and greed. 
um, a lot of fear. Yeah. You know, they whip up the fear, and that then that rage machine, um, you know, it keeps a pretty large uh, percentage, a lot more than four percent of the population, kind of whipped up, which is which is also disturbing. Yeah. So you mentioned something that I want to sort of circle back to for a moment. Um, so you don't think Gavin Newsom was ever more to the left than he is now? I feel like he's just become much more of a centrist. Is that just the wrong perception to have of him? No, no. He always has been like that. He's just really good at grabbing an issue that's Hiding popular it. and that's progressive. Okay. Um, and so he'll do one progressive issue while he's doing like, you know how like Trump is doing all yeah. this hideous like uh, human rights stuff. And meanwhile, like yeah. Congress is like gutting welfare or gutting Medicare or gutting Medicaid or gutting like children's right. health insurance, right? All of this stuff, just gutting the social yeah. welfare system. Um, and uh, that's how Gavin Newsom is. But he is with, um, he will do a progressive thing. And meanwhile, he'll be doing like all the centrist uh, budgeting, you know, mm -hmm. and anti-homeless. He did, he literally did an anti-homeless, uh, it was called Care Not Cash. And it was, it took away the welfare checks that homeless people got in San Francisco and replaced wow. it with, uh, with like a housing voucher. But, um, it was, there's no housing. Uh, it, but then there, there's no housing and then they're left with only like $200. Like, you know, so it basically is it like $800. So they'd be like, well, you can't get a house for $800. So we'll give you a house, no. but then you only have $200 <laughs> a month to live on. Right. And so, it's and, and it was a mean-spirited uh, kind of thing where they made it all happy. Like, we're going to give them housing. We're going to, you know, this is great. We're going to you know, solve homelessness. And it was very shallow because he could have done something that taxed uh, commercial property owners and said, and we're going to give you a house and you keep your welfare check. Then you have $800. Like a house and $800. Right. Like, they could have done that. Not what he did. Very, very cruel. And um, he... Uh, and then, but, but he did, uh, the gay marriage thing, but he was not first. That was Jason West in New York. Um, but Newsom mm -hmm. was the one who got all the attention because it was San Francisco. And this is, this right. San Francisco is liberal because this is where summer of love happened. It has not yeah. been very progressive for life. For the last 15 years, it's been turning, you know, more, more and more, um, just very rich, um, yeah, very bad mm -hmm. income, you know, massive income inequality. Um, you know, becoming Massive. like a Singapore or something, you know, with just this with oh, like yeah. gleaming skyscrapers and then, you know, people uh, who are in poverty. And Singapore, I think, does a much better job. They have much better social programs for those who are, you know, uh, truly, truly poor. But the, it's, it's right. about we need income inequality. We need a system where you don't have these oligarchs like sending mail to my house telling me to vote for one and three. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, one of the things that we also have going on here in Los Angeles area now that really has me very upset is we have, the homelessness has, has gotten so bad. We have working people sleeping in their cars at night. Yeah. So these aren't, you know, people that believe that homelessness is due to alcohol, mental illness, you can go down the list of what the preconceived notions are. That's, that's actually pretty false. Most homeless yeah. people actually do have jobs. They make minimum wage. They don't have enough money for housing because there simply isn't any affordable housing out there. So now the mean-spirited folks in the city they have now decided the cars. that they're going. Yeah, they want to outlaw sleeping in your car, and I and I I'm like I'm scratching my head, going, "Wow!" So now you want to take away the one shelter that they do have and truly make them homeless? That makes sense to you. In other words, why can't we just have safe parking lot or something. I mean, there's 
There are other right. solutions right. here. Right. There I are mean, other it's solutions. Granted, that's a temporary. Yeah. It's a temporary. It doesn't solve the problem. But in the meantime, don't kick them out of their cars. My God. It's also kind of seniors. A, I mean, I, you know, there are definitely, when I lived in Marina del Rey, I saw um, I, there were a number of seniors who lived in their cars. I'd see them every day, like when I went walking. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's a big problem. Like Social Security does not cover housing in California. No. The average, okay, so in the Los Angeles area, the average rent for a one-room studio apartment, I'm not even talking about anything fancy here, is a couple thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So your ba- you're like your your base. Yeah. And most Social Security. I don't know what the average is for California, but nationally, it's very low. Like under a thousand. Uh, nationally, yeah. I believe. Yeah. It's like it's just, it's just ridiculous. It's not much. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So it's so it's it's and the problem is is because of Costa Hawkins, you you've had all these folks lose their affordable housing because they were in rent control apartments. They were evicted. Uh, the buildings mm-hmm. were torn down. New buildings were, were were put up that are now uh, where the local municipalities can no longer control the the housing at all. So this is this is to me is one of the biggest failures of neoliberal policy, and it makes me irate when I see stuff online where I see these nutty MAGA right wingers etc. making these claims about this, and they're not wrong because I'm sitting here going, yeah, I'm a leftist, and you know what? You're right. We have fucked over a lot of people. We have. We have definitely contributed to the income inequality in the state, and now nobody seems to have the will to try to fix it. I mean, when Carla says she doesn't support overturning Costa Hawkins, I'm like, I'm done with you. How do we get the people, you know, who agree, like the two-thirds of people who agree on 90% of the issues, and certainly on these economic issues and healthcare issues, um, we have to get them together. And mo- you, yeah, yeah, we have to get them together, and we have, but we have really corrupt leadership right now, morally bankrupt leadership. They're they're uh, tools of a of a financial elite from That's all right. different industries Boom. and all different sectors, um, right. and uh, and they're deadly to our democracy ultimately. Deadly. Yeah, the plutonomy is like like I like to call them. That was the term they use in the city bank memo. That's exactly what mm. they are. It's 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 the consolidation of such wealth and power. And unless people become more aware of what's going on and actually pick up their pitchforks, they're going to continue to extract wealth and do whatever they want. And it's just going to, you know, honestly, I don't think they'll stop until there's literally nobody left to sell widgets to. They will have completely destroyed the consumer base in a way that it will finally affect them. And then they might yeah. stop and go, uh. Well, that's <laughs> like, the thing that, that, that really disturbs me about what's going on with Trump and immigration. And in, in some ways, yeah. Uh, Trump uh, serves a purpose of taking the the mask off of American autonomy. Um, exactly. And that uh, you know people are are suddenly seeing how evil these systems are that already uh, have existed, have been used, uh, have historical precedent. Um, but you know now we have social media, we have the ability to right. really share what's going on. And that is a good antidote to fascism uh, when everyone knows what's going on, because usually the fascists are a minority. Um, and mm-hmm. we, I think the left actually is doing a very good job of opening people's eyes to like, yeah, because if absolutely. it was, if we weren't agitating in the streets, then the TV yeah. channels would just talk, they would just talk about Russia, which is mostly what they do now anyway. <laughs> um, but they wouldn't exactly. even talk about politics. They would rather not talk about politics like on you know, GE doesn't want you talking about politics on MSNBC 
when they're selling uh, the missiles that are being sold to the Saudis to kill the Yemenis. Yeah. Um, That's right. The, the, um, uh, so I totally went off on a tangent there. <laughs> no, but it's a good tangent, and you're right about this. It, you know, it's, um, more people need to really think deeply on this because most of the refugees that are trying to get into this country that they're trying to block were created by actions that we engaged in. So this idea that the United yeah. States is innocent when we're not. I mean, the, the the notion of us protecting business interests abroad has been going on now since FDR. This is nothing oh, new. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, so yeah. The, the point is that it has taken many years for the, the, the they call it, you know, the prison industrial complex um, right. to, to develop to the point that it is so powerful now that literally it is acting hand in glove with the Republican Party, with Donald Trump, to uh, to imprison as many people as possible, as fast as possible, and then to spit them out as slave labor through the prison That's system. That's right. That, and and yeah, they are, so they are like people who are coming here to work as housekeepers and as farmers are being put mm-hmm. in jail and then farmed out as laborers to, um, mm-hmm. to, to companies, to corporations. Of the rest of the news, $11 million. That, according to a new report, is how much Americans' two largest private prison companies spent over the last six years lobbying Congress to keep detention centers stock full of undocumented immigrants. The report, which was released on Wednesday by a group called Grassroots Leadership, goes on to detail how this lobbying surge led to a $478 million windfall for companies like Geo Group and the Corrections Corporation of America, CCA. Immigration detention centers, though, are just one arm of the private prison empire. Since 1980, that industry has grown by more than 1,700%, and companies like CCA and Geo Group now make up around 100, now make around $122 a day from each prisoner locked up at their facilities. All this has come, of course, with a price. Broken families, broken lives, and shattered communities that are the end result of a criminal justice system run amok. And being, you know, and, yep. and, uh, and basically the only people making money off of this are uh, the investors in these gross publicly traded prison companies. I mean, Geo Group right. is a publicly Geo traded Group company. Awful. And they, yeah. got, they donated to Karen Bass last year. That's right. They donated to uh, Ted Lieu last year, resistance yep. hero Ted Lieu, liar Ted Lieu. This stuff just makes me yep. sick when I see that. Like, he is profiting personally off of his tragedies while taking the money. Like, uh, he's trying to turn himself into a star of tragedy mm-hmm. by fighting Trump while he's taking money on the other side. And then Ben Ray Lujan, who is the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, took a max $5,000 in two, two segments last October and this May. It's just absolutely sickening from this company, Geo Group, that is holding children. And if you search on their website, it, it, you don't even have to search. It has a big page, geogroup.com forward slash ice, with a big set of pictures of all their facilities, and they all have children's stuff to do. They're holding families, and in, in, they were doing this long, you know, it's, it's really bad stuff. It's really bad, and, and, and there are no, the Democrats are not on our side. Like, that's the thing. They are not on our side. They are tools no, of the not. same, uh, same um, systems. Yes, and so Jeff Berman, speaking of Geo Group, he was a lobbyist for Geo Group. He was a Clinton appoint- appointee to the Unity and Reform Commission. I don't know how many people oh realize God. that. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Wow. 
know you just did a uh, piece on this this week on the Geo Prison Group and the resistance stems here in the state of California, um, which was a great piece. Yeah. And I'm glad that you're talking about this because because Ted no one else will. Like, 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 this care. like no the news will. just does not care. Like the, the, the mainstream news does not care. It's over. This story is over. But we have to keep waking people up to it, and we have to grow a movement of people who actually are politically aware. Exactly. And it's, it's amazing to me, and, I, and you made the point in your piece that I thought was so spot on, that these, um, Ted Lieu particularly, has been very vocal about this issue. I, you know, he's on Twitter every day going I, on And I checked, I, I googled uh, Karen Bass, you know, news search. And all the latest news about her is about this. She's like, you know, going to do something at the borders. They yeah, don't know. They don't know. They are just machines. They are just machines now. They are, they are, they are human beings who've plugged into a totally corrupt system and allowed it to control them. I don't think it's really Ted who tweets, right? It's some member of his staff who's really good at Twitter. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, <laughs> they, you know, so what does Ted actually do? You know, like maybe he tweets this, the, he tweets like pictures with his kids. But, you know, uh, I don't think a real Congress person, I can't believe it. I can't believe that Donald Trump tweets like he does. And that's really him. It's fucking insane. We oh, live in a really weird, insane. like, it is really strange. We're in a weird time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> First person to use a Twitter account to announce a run for Congress, or at least to get covered in the news. I did not it. know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was when you were running for Congress for uh, District 10? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I ran for Congress, but it was just... Uh, it was a really good learning experience, but I was one of those dumb, you know, first-time white guy candidates who, like, you know, has a, a big mouth and uh, and uh, and is stupid enough to uh, think they can run for Congress. Who did you <laughs> like run? A rough education. Um, it was an open seat. It was an open seat, and that was what lured me in. Um, but the problem is, is that it had been represented by Ellen Tauscher, who was a blue dog Democrat, and. I right. uh, voted when Pelosi whipped everyone to vote for the Iraq war funding. Uh, she went along. And mm. So I had protested her back in the, in the early 2000s. And, um, and I said, uh, you know, I'm going um, to run for the seat because it's open. But the problem was is I was mad at her and her worldview. Mm-hmm. And, then, and that was not what the field was. The field, Garamendi was very far to her left. Um, Garamendi mm-hmm. a decent congressman, especially for, for his age. You know, they're... There are yeah. 40-year-olds doing way more fucked up right-wing shit than, than you know, Garamendi is a statesman. I, I tend to He's like him. I like debating him. Um, yeah. And uh, But it was the first person to get in the race was this guy, Mark DeSaulnier, who's now in Congress. And DeSaulnier had been a state senator, but he was the um, son of, like, a, a Republican from Massachusetts and maybe had been a Republican mm-hmm. in Massachusetts. I don't – and I thought that he was going to be kind of conservative and kind of her worldview. She was endorsing him. Alan Tauscher was. And uh, instead, mm. what happened was he turned out to also be very, very liberal. And so we, we'd be like, you know, I'd be like, legalize marijuana. And, and he'd be like, oh, OK, you know, and then Garamendi would be like, yeah, I can agree <laughs> with that. You know, and, and so, our, you know, instead of it being like against the centrist, it was basically um, me, a progressive socialist. Uh, and we were all Democrats at the time. I actually registered as a Democrat specifically for that election. Um, mm-hmm. There was another candidate mm-hmm. who ended up dropping out because he didn't register in time. They always put up hurdles, right? You can't register as a Democrat, you know, a month before. It has to be like nine months before or something, at least at that time. Uh, but uh, the difficulty was that there were good, very liberal candidates who had good, good records um, running, and they were great campaigners, and they raised a lot of money. And then there were that, – that was just two of them. There, were, there was an uh, assemblywoman 
who thought, you know, that maybe she would get in because she was the woman candidate. She was kind of the centrist right. candidate. She spent about a million dollars of her own money on the race. Um, but then there was a, um, a black gay Iraq war veteran from West Point um, who'd been discharged under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And he took all my votes <laughs> because everyone was like, uh, who's this Adriel Hampton progressive when we can get the West Point guy, you know? Um, yeah. And uh, and also he raised a lot of money. He, he uh, And it was crazy, though. Crazy, crazy story. I was talking to him right before our last debate. And we had done like a dozen debates. And Duramendi had been at uh, mm-hmm. almost every one of them. But he skipped this one. And we realized that meant he knew that he had it in the bag. And, oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, he didn't even need to appear. This was like five days before the election. And we're standing there. I'm standing next to him. I say, hey, uh, Anthony, how's it going? And Oh, he goes, that's good. He goes, that's good. And then he goes, actually, man, this is horrible. He goes, I, I need like nine hours of phone calls every single day and all the campaign events. Like, that's how he raises money. That's like what mm-hmm. the system is. It, it is because, unfortunately, yeah. there's no public financing of elections. So even if you've proven qualified or proven um, that you have the support from the community um, for these federal right. elections, you still have to raise the money to do that marketing campaign. And he raised, I think, like a quarter million. He probably could have done it mm. with less money because it was a short election cycle. But still, 250 is not that much. Uh, Garamendi did over a million. This uh, woman, Buchanan, did over a million. And I think uh, uh, Desaulnier probably a lot, too. So I came in like 12th out of 14 candidates. I got 347 votes. It was pretty embarrassing. And I, I think I uh, scrubbed that from my Wikipedia. I like, <laughs> I'm like, 12th out of 14 is okay, but don't say I got 347 votes. <laughs> but it was winner take all, which is another reason I like ranked choice. You know, ranked choice, right? <laughs> right? Like I, I would have got all his second place votes, and I would have got a bunch of second yeah. place votes from Garamendi uh, and um, Desalne. But it also taught me, you know, it taught me a lot of the stuff I use now in my in my consulting practice or when I volunteer or advise people. Um, like I didn't file a ballot statement. And that was because it cost mm-hmm. like 3000 bucks, and I knew that I had already lost. That was about six weeks before the election. And I didn't drop out right. because if you don't drop out, your name gets in the history books, right? You at least ran. Yeah. Um, if you drop out, you don't get that. And I'd already spent, like, I like maxed out my credit cards and, you know, right, raised right. like 15000 and, like, tore up my house, you know, to turn it into, like, a campaign staging area for signs. And, um, you know, but I didn't want to pay another 3000 when I knew I was just throwing it away. Um, and right. I wish people would really be more honest and transparent and treat their donors well, because now that you can digitally, you know, digital has made it easier to fundraise, but it's also made it kind of easier to misrepresent, you know, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, like me and my family and my friends knew that I wasn't going anywhere, you know, but I, but if I, but I was very good on the digital side, um, and, uh, uh, you know, got a lot of news coverage because of that, because I knew how to use Twitter and, uh, right. And Facebook, and I used like uh, Ning, that used to be like a social network generator back then. Yeah, well, you know, it is cheaper than having to buy radio spots and, and such. And I wish it's dramatically um, cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could really shoot your own own ads and just you know upload them to all the social media if you have a large enough following. But the other part of I would imagine the other part of that problem is that often when you're on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Your following uh, could be large, but it's not necessarily in your district, so they're not necessarily right. going to translate into votes. So that's the problem I would perceive as as a fundamental. That's very thing true. And I also pass. I didn't know at the time that um, now, like everyone who practices this stuff knows that 
on Facebook, you're trying to get people to give away their email address, and then you're going to fundraise by email. And that was oh, something I, I had okay. no idea about, you know, nine years ago. So mm-hmm. I'd like, you know, I did a lot of stuff that was unique, and, and, but it was only because I was first. I wasn't good at it. Uh, and right. then now, like nine years later, I'm good at it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you should run again. <laughs> I probably not. I mean, it's even worse. It's even a worse uh, time to run as a, as a, as a, you know, white guy. It's tough. I'm excited to see that there are more people participating, and we have more candidates coming out and running. But at the same time, you're right; it, it makes it a little bit tougher because the competition is uh, much more spread out. And the problem with the primaries is not enough people come out and vote. I just, I'm very yeah, frustrated by gosh. that. The voter apathy is deadly. It is, especially since the do. conservatives come out and vote. I was looking, and yeah. I don't know how yeah. this held up, but early mail ballot returns were showing that conservatives uh, over 55 were voting at like five times the rate as liberals uh, <sighs> under 40. Is really awful. That's I was crazy. like, God, I hope that, you know, does this hold up? And I, I, I need to look at the results, but I know that like a, a old conservative's vote counts for way more than a young person, a young liberal person's. <laughs> um, and that's because they vote. And, the, you know, registration exactly. doesn't matter. Like um, we now wow. have, oh, so the other thing is NPPs didn't vote. You know, NPPs uh, outnumber uh, Republicans now in registration, but they don't. Absolutely, um, they don't vote. They voted at like half the rate of the Republicans. And Which you know, some NPPs are conservative, but a lot of us are progressives or or tuned out. I think a lot of yeah. people are tuned out and they'll stay registered, but they won't have anything to do with either of the parties. Right. I, uh, you know, I think actually the way it breaks down, the NPP, which is no party preference here in California, just for the audience. The MPP voters actually are the largest group voting block of registered voters in California now. So neither neither party has a, a, an advantage unless they appeal to the MPP voters. L.A. County Registrar Dean Logan. You know, uh, California has a very high number of registered independents. I think up to 40 at some point. Is that about right? Uh, no party preference voters? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that's actually, interestingly, uh, the, the fastest growing party selection on registration is is voters who are choosing not to make a party selection um, when they register. And uh, so tell me what, uh, you know, how these uh, non-party uh, preference voters can participate on primary day. Right. So this is actually one of the reasons why presidential primaries are the most complex elections that we administer in California, because they have a whole different set of rules. Since we've moved to the top two primary system for our state primaries for new voters, they've never experienced this before. That this In this primary, for the presidential contest, your ballot is going to be determined by how you registered to vote and which party you selected. So voters who did not select a party, no party preference voters, uh, won't see the presidential contest on their ballot. Um, so then at the next level, though, the, the parties have different rules. So the Republican Party, for instance, as well as the, the Green Party and the Peace and Freedom Parties have what's called a closed primary, which means they, they do not allow anyone to vote in, for their presidential candidates other than voters registered with their party. Contrast that to the, the Democratic, American Independent, and Libertarian Party who have a modified open primary that, that allows for no party preference voters to cross over and participate in their primary, but the voter has to affirmatively request that um, and indicate that they're requesting to vote in that primary. So uh, what that looks like for voters, if you're a vote-by-mail voter, uh, we sent you a postcard back in March kind of giving you those parameters and said if you want to cross over, let us know. Um, we understand 
that's in a pile of mail and, and in March you're probably not thinking about <laughs> voting voting in June. So if you've received a uh, no party preference ballot in the mail and you want to cross over for one of those parties, uh, you can still do that. You can uh, contact us, um, make a new request and declare which party you want. Or you can go to your polling place on election day, surrender that vote by mail ballot and, and cross over. If you're a poll voter on election day, when you go in to sign that roster, the poll workers are instructed when they see that you're a no party preference voter to go over the choices with you and allow you to make the, the choice of which ballot you want to vote. That's good to know. Which is why it was so stupid of the Democrat Party to be fighting um, the Sanders campaign on this because Sanders, uh, he really appealed to a lot of those NPP voters. and. Right. Uh, and they came into the party. They, well, they it was more important to them to get Hillary right. Clinton than it was to build their party. I think MPPs are second, but um, but there's no one you know no one can get to 50 percent uh, without the it's MPPs, impossible. and that's a little that's bit right. dangerous with Newsom and this Cox guy. I mean, it, I hope this guy Cox is, I agree. is horrible, but um, Newsom is so bad, and a lot of people can see right through him. Like you know, that's not gonna. Um, bode well. Adriel, Adriel, this is this is what concerned me the most, believe it or not, about this Cox situation was it was so reminiscent for me of the 2016 primary when the DNC purposely did a Pied Piper strategy elevating Trump, assuming assuming that he would never be able to win. And the so to me, it's like, are you guys really so cocksure of yourself that you don't think John Cox in this environment? Could possibly it's win. It, yeah. Oh, okay. And also because no progressive got on the ballot statewide. You know, Gail right. was like That's the best right. shot at that. All of the parties are supporting one candidate right. for a lower office, and then you would have got all the leftists to vote in November. But a lot of That's leftists right. are you probably going to sit it out, and a lot of exactly Democrats and uh, and moderate NPPs don't vote, and all exactly. of the radical right votes, and all of the old conservatives I know. vote. I know. It's, it's upsetting to me because we could have had two Democrats feasibly. This was not a crazy thing to And that say. would have been amazing. Absolutely not Yeah, crazy. and it would have been amazing because it would have helped define the future of the party. That's right. It, it could have been a progressive line against chance. the centrist. They lost right. that chance because, they were, because this is a guy that was so self-absorbed about him thinking to himself, it'll be much easier to defeat a Republican in the general election, which is, I'm, I will agree that that is true. It's, it's California. Yeah. I don't doubt that that's not true. However, the bigger picture here is, are you so cocksure in the way that you folks were about Trump that that's not a possibility? Because I'm not that sure anymore. Well, they are hoping that that fear will get you to vote for him. But it won't anymore. I'm so, I mean. I think, uh, <laughs> but for most people, you know it probably saying? will. You know, I mean, I think I that they're, they're actually banking know. on that. I think they're, they're banking, banking on that. They're, the lesser yeah. evil thing needs to stop. I'm really done with the uh. lesser evil thing. I just. I can't, yeah. I can't. Well, we have to make a great. We have to make a greater good together before we can stop the lesser evil, right? Right now, we I haven't agree. made the greater good, and that's uh, one of the really interesting things I learned um, working with some of the RPA volunteers that were helping with Gail's campaign. Um, their big thing is that the, the candidates come out of the community and out of the movement, and it, and they're kind of chosen. Like, and you know, I'm sure it works. Uh, it, it's always better in theory than, than in practice, but you, you have right, to right. build up. You can't just say like, oh, here's this person running against this other person. Oh, they seem better. You need to say like, here's this person that I've been organizing with for the last two years. They're a great speaker. They have a really good heart. They, they have a lot of integrity. We should run them for office, you know, or, and, mm -hmm, you know, and then you mm -hmm. have that collaboration. 
and we don't yet, we're not at that place. And that's where we had like, you know, we had so many candidates running. Um, we had, you know, no one, no one would, would drop out of the Senate race, you know, or bow out because they all thought like, oh, I might be the one who gets 3% and it's, you know, right. and that's just a little bit more than the other 3%. Um, yeah. And yeah. that kind of behavior is like not good. And we okay. need like as a progressive movement in California to figure out like how do we, how do we overcome that, you know, and this mm-hmm. was another kind of, you know, a growing year for progressives, but uh, we've got to keep it growing, not, not, not we let it. Um, yeah. Not, like, like we got kicked, you know, in the teeth at the ballot box, but you know, you gotta, gotta pick it back up. Indeed. Um, so I wanted to ask you before I let you go, I'm very curious about this new book that you're going to be um, coming out with at the end of the month or beginning of August, I guess. Oh yeah. It's called Lux Balloons. It's on um, progressive organization. Can you walk us yeah, through it? Yes, it's, it's for book? fundraising. Yeah, it's fundraising. Okay. So, um, so one of the big things that we have seen is that um, that candidates, especially first-time candidates, and this was true for me too, they don't know how to fundraise. I knew a little bit when I ran nine years ago. I had an email program. Mm-hmm. And I emailed my friends and family, and I had fundraising. But I also had a, a friend um, who consulted with me, like for the first several weeks of the race, and he told me like how to do some of the stuff, right? And right. people just don't know how to do it. They don't know how, like, what? How do I use Act Blue? What is Act Blue? Act Blue isn't Act Blue the DNC thing? It's like no, like any progressive who is running in a Democratic primary as a Democrat mm-hmm. can use Act Blue. And the thing right. about Act Blue, for example, is that um, millions of Bernie donors created Act Blue accounts and trust Act Blue. And so if you reach those people, um, they are way more likely to donate. And then you have some people on the left who are like, I don't want anything to do with the Democrats. Give me a different payment processor. The problem is they're all bad. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> the, uh, they're all bad. so this book is simply, um, it's going to be a guide to how to um, set up fundraising when you first launch a campaign. Um, it is going to be very, um, a lot of uh, email fundraising is very fear-based and urgency based mm-hmm. and it's it kind of twists your emotions and your anxieties to get you to give money we're mm-hmm. trying like to use language and like marketing psychology that is hope-based that is like oh, um, that. makes people feel good um, we still want their money yeah. we have to motivate them but we want them to say you know it says like your donation today is going to help Gail pass single-payer in California right right um, and that. so yeah and so uh, instead of instead of time is running out, Gail only has 12 hours to raise $962. Right? Yeah, and, you know, and you've probably and seen Trump. that, that exact one. <laughs> and fuck Trump, yeah. Yeah, in flashing red letters. So a lot of the right? uh, fundraising is, uh, is uh, Democrat and Republican. You can't really tell the difference because it's all using the same kind of marketing so technology. Bad, yeah. yeah, and so we're, mm-hmm. we're trying to kind of um, promote a different way of doing it that also works but that is hope-based. And then the second nice. piece is we're going to take like excerpts and templates from hundreds and hundreds of emails that we've written for different clients that work and put that all into templates for different subjects like Medicare for all, um, indigenous mm-hmm. rights, um, social security expansion. You know, and I think we've got like 20 different topic chapters and it'll have examples of what you can use in your email. So the idea is that book will help um, particularly the municipal candidates running in November. Um, but also anyone who's a first-time candidate for any level of office have um, a workbook that they can use to kind of create their email program and get up and running or to train their staff. Um, 
so that's that's the idea of it. And it'll be like a paid thing, but we'll probably you know do workshops where people can get it for free and stuff like that. Oh, excellent! Yeah, because I do think that that is a missing piece. We do have a lot of uh, first-time candidates running on the left, which is great. I'm glad to see the civic engagement, but if you're right, if they don't know how to um, work through the system, it can be very frustrating, no doubt, and it could also lead to them not winning their election when, if they were given the correct information or some guidance, um, it would be a much better outcome. So I'm, I'm glad that you're doing that, and I, I love the hope-based messaging because I have to tell you, I had to unsubscribe from the CalDem list because I got so sick of the fear-based Nothing other right. than fuck Trump emails from them. I'm like, this is all you have? I'm so turned yeah. off. I'm your people, and I don't want to hear from you anymore. They're you probably know? at that point like so, recycling templates. You know, they probably have like ten messages, yeah. and they're just kind of just recycling. Um, yeah, it, it's, that it's still, so that still, uh, it, Absolutely. Yeah, but you brought up the um, the skills gap, you know, with first time candidates, and like the problem yeah. about humans, right, is that we we're, we don't have that thing and from the original Matrix where he plugs in and he knows Kung Fu, right? We don't know campaigning until we've done it for a long time. They say, what, yeah. is it 10,000 hours? And so mm -hmm. um, we, what I'm trying to do right now with my consulting firm is um, it's very, consulting is very hard because especially like the level, like, you know, we spent a ton of time with Gail and, um, and, and you, you know, so much of your brain and your heart and, and uh, your time goes into that. Um, we're trying to figure out ways that we can scale some of this knowledge that is uh, just right. essential for doing a campaign well and turn them into like super affordable trainings. So we're working on one for Facebook advertising. We're working on another. We have one that's done just like uh, for um, how to do a text bank. Like if you're first, you know, mm -hmm. a, as your campaign, not how to sign up as a volunteer, how me, you know, you, Tina, Burr, if you were to, um, you know, run for office, uh, you know, here's how you mm -hmm. set up the text bank. Here's how you budget. Uh, here's how you plan your budget. Here's how you, you know, you get your messages in. Here's how, you know, different software and how much they cost and how they work. Um, and that, that stuff, because I can only, you know, consult with a handful of people at the same time in actual real time, but we could train a lot more. So. Right, right. Now, that's great. Uh, one last question, because I want to know if this bothers you or bothers me. How do you feel about lobbyists now calling themselves consultants to try to avoid <laughs> the term lobbyist? <laughs> that is hideous. Yeah, no, that is hideous. Because So what's really interesting is um, San Francisco has um, some local ordinances around this that I think work really well. Uh, and, they, and the problem is, is that uh, almost whenever you pass something, then the corporations that uh, it was meant to curb just figure out how to get around it, and that has happened. Right. But, um, you couldn't, you couldn't be a lobbyist and a consultant. Like, you couldn't work on a campaign, right? And so the problem, mm -hmm. the really big problem, and I know there, there are probably some federal laws around this. I'm not, you know, super expert at uh, the, the lobbyist versus consultant there, but you just don't want someone who is uh, helping. Uh, one, you don't want someone who's helping elect officials to then lobby them. And then two, right. a lobbyist is a lobbyist is a lobbyist, right? A consultant, yeah. or you know, a consultant is like, what is a, a consultant? Uh, if they're telling you how to get through to Congress, or if they're making any contacts, that's why it has to be, it has to really be contact based. Like, has Howard Dean ever made a call or introduced someone by email? 
to his company, yeah. then he is a, a fucking lobbyist if he's ever done that work. Absolutely. You know, if he's getting paid yeah, well, I mean, to make introductions to government officials, it's to government officials. Like, yeah. I can be a consultant and use my network to, to grow things and build things, but I can't do it to influence government decisions without being a lobbyist. Right. You know, like, that's the, that's the uh, um, not from, not well, from the inside, you know. Exactly. They call themselves consultants, but then they're representing corporations. So it's like, no, you're not really. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, I mean know, the action is, it's like, it's a, it's a pretty clear activity, right? If you're seeking to influence a yeah. government decision and you're using your relationships to influence the government decision and you're being paid for it, you know what I mean? By a corporation. Yeah. Like, then you're a lobbyist. That's the definition. Like, if me, Adriel Hansen, says, hey, you know, I, uh, you know, have helped progressives a lot. You're a progressive in office. I wish you'd really reconsider your position on Costa Hawkins. Am I a lobbyist? No, I'm an activist because I'm not getting paid by yeah, a real estate lobby right. because, because people are paying the real estate lobby. The realtors are paying people to go to Congress and say those things. And they're paying people like me. Right, right. That's what just is appalling yeah. too is I came back yeah. from LA to San Francisco uh, two years ago after being in LA for four years and the big thing I saw was that so many people my age, like I'll be 40 next month, um, the, they had just gone and they were in you know, public affairs and lobbying for all these big, ugly corporations like Uber and Google yeah. and Airbnb. Right. Um, and, yeah. you know, this is like people I thought were progressive. Um, and the problem is, is that they, and they make probably two or three times as much money as I do. Um, but, you know, it's like, and that's why, that's why I guess why they do it, because that's success making money working right. for a big corporation thing that's been going on that i find very disturbing i was a public policy advocate which uh is an unpaid position i was a, on the board of directors for um two different nonprofits as as a public policy advocate so which is a form of lobbying but like you said i'm lobbying for stuff that matters to the folks that we service so these are homeless right. issues you know uh, education issues etc so but i would often be, you know, we did a human trafficking bill, and you'd have to go in front of the public safety committee, et cetera, and defend your bill. You know, you go through the, the whole entire uh, start to finish process of passing a bill. But, um, you know, and I would often see these high-paid lobbyists sitting on the other side of the table. I knew who they were. But here's yeah. the thing that's, that's changing that's really bothering me since I've been out of the loop. I'm now noticing that a lot of the public policy advocates, they, they're not unpaid positions. They're paid positions. But they're also serving the needs of corporate donors that are giving to the nonprofit organization. Really? Oh. Wow. Yeah, as opposed you mean to the so they, they're they using the nonprofit to lobby for them because they're a big donor? Right. So uh, here, I'll give you a couple yeah. examples. So NAACP was um, coming out against net neutrality. They'd taken money in from Verizon. Tell me there's no mm. quid pro quo. I don't believe it. Um, no, I, I don't believe it either. Is, yeah, Planned Parenthood is fighting a unionization effort. Why is that? Jane Kim here in San Francisco, she had um, a consultant who was a consultant for the American Beverage Association which is the one that doesn't want you to ban sugar, um, you know, or tax sugar in soda. Right, and right, drink. right. Yeah, and, um, yeah. and also, uh, and so all of a sudden there were like, you know, there was an Ambev pack and, uh, and a PG&E pack, like supporting this candidate, you know, and this was two years ago. But it's like, like and wait a minute, and your consultant just happens to like have relationships in the past with, you know, and right, right. A, a lot of it is just like, 
if you have good lawyers, you can do almost anything in this world. Um, mm -hmm. And that, uh, you know, in, in this world is on the, on the giant real sense and also in this political world of, you know, campaign finance and IEs. But um, that's really disturbing. It's, it's not, not new. new. The, the Melt Club new. did the same thing. So one of the most progressive clubs worse, took money from AMBEV and then um, endorsed against Why the Fed because they, because they, because money. I mean, it's so awful. It's like money people talks, do a lot of yeah, things for money. Awful.